We're getting after it again, CNFers. This is your extra podcast. It's your cherry on top. And if you don't like maraschino cherries, like me, consider this your extra dollop of whipped cream. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. This is your monthly fix of celebrating the Atavis magazine and its monthly writer. This month I speak with Jordan Michael Smith about his true crime piece. The lead editor of said piece is Jonah Ogles. So I start out this jam sesh with him, of course, about what made Jordan's piece special and how they approached the story. Then I talk to Jordan about how he arrived at it via the kindness of other journalists, structure and pacing, obsession and singular focus, and the depth of commitment that it takes to make it as a journalist of this cut of silk. Great stuff, man. It's great stuff. Before we get to that, I want to strongly consider or strongly suggest subscribing to Atavis Magazine to support the incredible blockbuster journalism that Sayward Darby and Jonah Ogles are publishing every single month. We need to get back into the habit of paying for the stuff that matters. I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Trust me. But isn't it great that you're not like bombarded with ads? And when you're reading one of these stories, that's because it's largely subscriber-supported. I know I appreciate it. I'm sure you do too, man. And I get it. We only have a few bucks to spare at the end of a month after we account for bills and our vices. But if you can, consider throwing some of them bucks their way. And speaking of bucks, patreon.com slash cnfpod is how you can make the show better and support writers and really make a difference with the production of the show. I publish an audio magazine that is exclusive to the Patreon community. I've got a new one coming up soon on the theme of summer. Being a patron helps keep the lights on at CNF Pod HQ. Grants you goodies like transcripts and coaching. And you can uh, I solicit uh, a call for questions that you can that I will ask guests, some prominent guests that come on the show and I give you credit for that. That's kind of cool. And, you know, other other exclusive content as well. But also the knowledge that your dollars are funneled into the community to celebrate great, true stories and the people who tell them. As always, you can keep the conversation going on social media by linking up to the show and tagging me. At CNF Pod and at Brendan O'Meara. Digi fist bumps if you tag me, bro. And I'd be remiss if I didn't lastly add that if you're looking to get into better physical shape, you hire a personal trainer. Listen, you know how to eat right and exercise, but having that coach in your corner holds you accountable. When it comes to your book or your essay or a book proposal or query letters, whatever, man, consider giving me a call so I can be there in your corner to serve you in your work and maybe see things that you can no longer see. Email me if you're interested and we'll start a dialogue. Brendan at brendanomero.com. All right, I think that's about it. That's about it. That's enough housekeeping. Why don't we just get right into it? First, with Jonah. Here we go. Now, what's the feeling for you as the editor and the coach behind a, a piece of this nature that that Jordan wrote? 
Yeah, well, you know, true crime stories are are, are sort of a, a, well, obviously they're a genre unto itself, you know. Um, so you, I guess for me, it's about uh, sort of pacing and when to reveal certain information, you know, because any true crime story, you know, somebody can go online and figure out what happened pretty quickly. So, so I, at least for me and maybe other editors have figured this out, but I, I'm always trying to, to walk the line between knowing what information to keep from a reader in order to make for a good reading experience and, and what information to give them so that they don't then feel cheated uh, when they reach the end of a piece, because, because it's, because we're cheating them the entire time a little bit, you know, um, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we know what happened from the get go, but, uh, it's, if you just explain all of that, it's just a Wikipedia entry and, and we want this to feel immersive and for readers to, you know, uh, develop an emotional attachment to characters and to be surprised. Uh, and, and so doing that, it really, you know, involves a lot of a lot of craftsmanship. I think uh, just sort of trial and error in trying to figure out where to reveal certain information. It raises a, a really neat point about um, having to be very sort of uh, genreistically nimble as an editor. It, like like you're saying, like teasing out the information so you're giving the reader a little bit each time, a slow reveal in a, in the case of a true crime piece. But then there might be some other repertorial pieces where maybe that's not as important or certainly something that's more personal or memoir driven where it might not be. It's sort of like a different kind of hat and a different kind of uh, uh, editorially nimble is the best way I can frame it. So like when you like when you're approaching something of this nature is it, is editing a, a story like always the same or do you approach it a slightly different depending on the genre of the piece? Yeah, I do approach it differently. And, and certainly I try to be aware of, of the genre that it, that it's falling in and, and true crime is one of those where, you know, you can, you can borrow a lot of tricks and tools that other true crime writers have, have used and because it's just so prevalent. And so it, it's easy to find lots of good examples. And so that, that is certainly nice. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit comforting, I think, to, to know that other people have told stories like this. And if I ever feel stuck or the writer feels stuck, there are lots of places we can go to, to see how to get around it. But I, I think, I think that aside, you still have to take every piece as its own piece of writing, you know, and, and what, what might work in one may, may not in another, e even if they're two pieces of, of crime writing. And I can't remember what the piece was exactly, but you know, there was a piece recently where I was just sort of beating my head against the wall trying, trying to do what I would normally do. And it wasn't until I had Sayward read it that just that different perspective allow allowed us to see it differently you know she she just saw it 
is its own piece without all the stuff that I had tried to do. And that can sometimes sort of free the piece up and allow it to, to move forward and become its best, the best version of itself. And, and what grabbed you in particular about Jordan's piece when it came across your desk? Yeah, well, it's dark, isn't it? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a a fairly it's a fairly dark piece, and as some as a lot of true crime stories are, and because of that, you know, we reject an awful lot of true crime stories because they just feel they feel like other pieces, and and what really intrigued me about this was the relationship between. Scott Kimball, the the main, I guess, antagonist in, in this story, and law enforcement. You know, there were there are a lot of interactions between the character and either individual law enforcement officers or FBI agents or, you know, entire organizations. And that is what stood out to us with this particular story. Like, yes, the crimes themselves, you know, if it it had just been that, I'm not sure we would have been all that interested because there are stories like that out there. But in this particular case, those interactions and that relationship, it made it feel new and surprising to us. And some writers and, and reporters are, well, let's just say writers can be, you know, great stylists or, um, you know, others are maybe are just super strong reporters, if you will. Like, uh, but what was it uh, or what was that s- a little special something that Jordan brought to this piece that, you know, elevated above, you know, some of the, the slush of true crime, if, yeah. if that makes any sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, he he had access you know, he had really good access on this story to to all sorts of characters. And he had done a lot of interviews already before he even came to us and had a lot of documentation. And so we always, from the very beginning, we, we felt confident that no one was, was going to out-report us on this story, you know? And, and I think every editor and writer sort of has that fear of like, oh God, someone else could be working on this at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and there are times where I get, we get pitches and we think there's a 100% chance that someone else is writing this story and, and there might be a good chance that they have the better version of it. But that was not a fear with Jordan. We we knew that no one else was going to have the access that he had because he, he he spent so much time interviewing both Kimball and Carl Schloff, the main FBI agent in the story. And so we were we were really confident that Jordan had the goods on the reporting side. And when you get a, a, a pitch that kind of lights you up and you're like, oh, this is something I think we want to pursue – what are the, you know, the first, you know, question or two where you're like, all right, this is, uh, you know, we're thinking about this one. So what's the first, you know, question or two that you then take back to the writer and be like, can, if you can answer these, you know, we're we're going to really green light this. Yeah, yeah. Well, we spend an awful lot of time talking to all writers about the beginning, the middle and the end, which sounds really basic, but, but so many stories fall apart when, when we ask that question, you know, what, where does it start? Where does it go? And how does it end? Uh, I've probably even said those words on this podcast before, because it's so central to what we do. And 
you know, in this in this case, and, and this is an advantage a lot of true crime stories have, you know, you know what those are, you know, you, you know, generally, you know, like when they were caught or if they were caught or how they got away. Um, and, and there's a lot of crime in the middle, which naturally makes a story dramatic and filled with tension. So that, that is usually the question that I go back to writers with just to make sure we're on the same page that, that the way we imagine the story progressing and the way we see the arc is also the way the writer sees those things. Excellent. And, and maybe just in closing here, you know, what are, what are some things that just, uh, you know, really excite you about this piece for, for readers to dig into and sink into? Yeah, well, it's a it's a beautiful layout. First of all, um, our our designer Ed Johnson did a really great job with it, and which I know isn't at all writing related, but I was so happy with it when I first opened it up. I I needed to mention it, um, but you know, with with Jordan, it feels. Like Jordan and I kept saying, you know, like there, there are definitely like some Elmore Leonard moments in this. There, there's a lot of, a lot of tragedy in it. And, and you can see, you know, I I think readers will start to see characters moving in a particular direction and, be hoping that they somehow pull themselves out of it. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, catastrophe is averted and sometimes it's not, but it felt very novelistic to me, the way just the general plot of, of this particular story. And, and I think Jordan did a nice job. You know, you talked earlier about like some, some writers are, are great stylists and, and sort of have, you know, their language does a lot of the work and, my own personal preference was with these types of stories is for that language to be really punctuated, you know, really just a, a, a moment of it here, a moment of it there, a, a quippy little line every so often, but to otherwise let the story do the work. And, and I think Jordan really struck the right balance uh, on pulling that off. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jonah, as always, uh, a great pleasure to talk to you about this and tease out the the piece. So uh, thanks for hopping on as always. And, uh, you know, have have yourself a wonderful holiday weekend. Yeah, thanks so much. Good talking to you, Brendan. You do the same. All right. Not too shabby, right? That, that, that gives you kind of a teaser. So Jordan Michael Smith here. He's written this piece. Uh, here's a little bit about him. I mean, I'm just going to read it straight from his website, jordanmichaelsmith.com. Go check that out. Follow him on Twitter and uh, check out the work. But here's a little blurb. Jordan Michael Smith is a journalist, ghostwriter, and speechwriter. He is the author of the best-selling Kindle single, Humanity, How Jimmy Carter Lost an Election and Transformed the Post-Presidency, former speechwriter for New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Comptroller Scott Stringer and a former communications consultant at the UN. His writing has appeared in print and online for many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Esquire, BBC, and MSNBC. And I might as well add the Atavis, right? So uh, we start our little conversation here. I asked him straight up just how he uh, arrived at this story. Ready? Let's do this. 
story itself actually came from a different, better writer named Rachel Monroe. Uh, and on Twitter, she's a, a, a writer who mostly writes about crime in Texas. And uh, I follow her on Twitter. And she mentioned uh, a couple years ago, this is in 2017, that she had been hiking uh, with a friend who was in the FBI. And the FBI agent mentioned uh, that the FBI once had an informant who was a serial killer. And I tweeted back. I said, that sounds amazing. When is your story going to appear? And she said she wasn't writing up. She was preoccupied with her book. And so I, I spoke to her a little more and she very generously and graciously encouraged me to pursue this story. So that's how it all began. And uh, it, it really sort of, the first thing I did was I got the name of, of the killer, a guy named Scott Lee Kimball, and I tracked him down and wrote him in, in prison. And to my surprise and to my good luck, uh, he, he said that uh, he wanted to talk for a story and he had never spoken at length, uh, but it was a, a really a, a, a great time um, for, for him to do so in his life. And so he, he, he did now, he wasn't truthful with me about virtually anything, but he was able to get me access to a lot of, a lot of different things. Hmm. How do you navigate that when you're dealing with a, a primary source of that nature who is very unreliable in that way? Well, this was the, the, the fortunate thing was that I knew going in that he would be unreliable because he is a serial killer. And so I knew going in that I had to distrust every word that he said, but knowing also that it could some things might be true and that I have, I might be able to have him, you know, get me access to members of his family or things from his past. Um, even, even things inadvertently, he might say the, what I had to do was just double check everything that he said and triple check and, and not maybe use what he said as the starting point for some things, use him as just a, a sort of, as you said, unreliable person, but maybe one who might be interesting to talk to for other reasons in that he can give me insight into maybe his thinking or the thinking of a sociopath. Uh, and he might, uh, he actually helped me get a lot of documents. And um, so, you know, it, it just, you have to be ultra skeptical. And, and obviously that's not, you know, a bad thing for any reporter. Uh, and it, it's the people who didn't know when they first were dealing with Scott that he was an inveterate liar. Those people were in more trouble. I sort of had the luck on my side. I love how the genesis of the story came from, you know, Rachel Monroe having it and then really like graciously giving giving it uh, essentially giving it away as, as you know, like being in this morass, a lot of it can be kind of competitive and where there's toxic jealousies and all that kind of stuff going on. It's just kind of the nature of being a writer. Um, but that must've been, I don't know, that's really encouraging for, for me to hear. And I suspect listeners to hear that someone, someone like Rachel would be like, you know what, like I'm tied up here. I can't work on this story. I'm going to hand it off to someone that I, that I trust with it. She, she's that generous a person and that good a writer that she has so many good stories that this was, I guess, just really one among many. And, and I think you're right. It is it is very encouraging that there are people like her out there. And she's, you know, I was following her on Twitter for a reason, which is that she's just an, a first rate 
a reporter and um and i uh, love her her stories and and so it was just you know really good fortune uh to happen to be a fan of of such a a, a generous person and when you say that you know she was a you know a, a better writer and she, a great reporter um you know what is it about her writing and her reporting that you've been able to sort of uh you know I don't know, deconstruct or put on the x-ray glasses to be like, oh, that's that's how she's doing it. Like, I, I need to, I can do that or apply those tools to my work. Well, one thing that she does, that she, she has a great book uh, called Savage Appetites. And it's a, it's a work of true crime, but it really deconstructs true crime as a genre. And uh, really isn't so much about crime as it is about us and people who, who consume true crime, and obviously there's a big, a true, a big true crime boom. Um, I think really since Serial uh, came out, and that's what her book is about. And what I tried to make this story like um, is a sort of anti FBI hero story, and uh, you know it, it's a real trope uh, in in movies and and television shows and in books a crackerjack detective who who breaks the case and or who either picks up a cold case or, uh, you know, through long hours and diligence and, and fighting with a bureaucracy is able to somehow save the day, even if they're sort of gritty. And um, what I tried to do, partly inspired by Rachel's work, was sort of reverse that and say, well, no, actually, here you have uh, an FBI agent and, uh, and an entire FBI office who missed something right under their nose that they that they should have seen. And so I think that true crime is a dangerous genre. Uh, you're dealing with other people's pain and, and their trauma and uh, trying to spin that for entertainment. And it's fraught. And there are a lot of uh, ethical conundrums. And, and I think Rachel is very good at, at spelling those out and navigating those. And, and that's what I tried to do in my piece. You know, um, not we didn't write it. In, in fact, we didn't write it at all from the from the killer's point of view. And um, there's very little about there's, there's very little that's gruesome. I mean, and uh, and I think for a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, are interested in serial killers and we want to know what makes them tick and we're interested in how they did their, their awful things. And this story really doesn't get into that. It's a, it's a um, story about a serial killer that uh, is more about the mistakes that were made that enabled to him to, to carry out what he did. It isn't really about what makes him so fascinating. And you mentioned dealing with people's pain, you know, in order to, you know, to write a story that is ultimately, you know, lands on an, a reader for, you know, entertainment purposes, informative, but also the, that level of entertainment. How do, how do you um, approach those difficult conversations with people whose, uh, whose pain is quite literally in your hands? Well, the first one is, you know, you definitely want to understand that there are things that are more important than your story. And that yeah. is people's lives. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, very willing to take no for an answer. I know that reporters are not supposed to take no for an answer, but I think that with uh, it in, in true crime, when you're dealing with people who, who have suffered 
unimaginable losses. I think taking no for an answer is a very reasonable, smart thing to do. And um, so, you know, I'm just prepared for that. And and the other thing to keep in mind is that when you're writing about about crime, you are bringing all these horrible, horrible acts and horrible events back up in in memory. You're reviving the trauma for these people. And, um, you know, and and so you better have a good reason to do that. There, There was a Ted Bundy documentary uh on netflix and and uh it it was completely gratuitous and it didn't add anything and uh that's the type of thing that i've always tried to avoid doing uh if you're going to bring people's pain back up if you're going to tell their stories that their worst stories uh even with their permission you better have a good reason for doing it and so you need to have some larger social purpose and are are trying to get at something beyond just uh, indulging people's titillation. And, um, and so I think, uh, you know, I I consume a lot of of true crime. I I read a lot of it. And I think I, I, um, you know, I'm very attuned to the stereotypes and the pitfalls and the problems and, and the failures that that can result. Uh, in the genre. And so I just tried to, to be hyper aware of that. And uh, of course, I have, um, you know, my editors who were very helpful in, in talking through any, any conundrums or, or issues, thorny issues that I had. And regarding the, the writing of the piece, uh, what was the, the nature of the or your approach to the structure in the pacing of it? Yes, that was without a doubt, the the hardest thing for me uh because there were so many different years uh of that the story goes through uh starting you know all the way back in in the 1960s and to the present day and uh and, and important times in the 1980s and the 1990s as well as the present day and so the time shifts were really difficult on top of that, there were a lot of different characters. It wasn't just one or two. It was, uh, you know, one or two main ones. Um, but th- th- there's a lot of secondary characters in here. And so this was a really heavily edited piece. And I have to give a lot of credit to my editors, uh, especially Jonah Ogles uh, at uh, The Atavist, because they changed it a lot. And they changed it for the better. The version that I first went in with um, you know, was very different. It was much more of a, of a, uh, almost a ProPublica type piece that was really, uh, heavy on, uh, investigation and wrongdoing, uh, as opposed to an atavist piece, which is, you know, much more cinematic, uh, and, and much faster paced. And so, uh, that was definitely the biggest challenge, you know, what to do. We had to figure out how much to include of, of the Kimball, uh, of, of the perspective of, of the killer, Scott Kimball. Uh, and, uh, eventually we went with almost nothing, um, because it's very easy in a, in a story like this to make him uh, the focal point of the piece, but of the fact that he's unreliable and the fact that really what's new you know, Kimball has been written about a little bit before, and there were two documentaries made about him. Um, 
Nightline, actually three, I guess, including one about his ex-wife. So three sort of one-hour shows made for TV shows about him and uh we i was doing something very different which which was i was focusing on the fbi and how they had made mistakes and so i knew that that was going to be you know what i was really adding to the story and and what uh has not been reported at all so i wanted to very much forefront that and so my editors and i sort of agreed that you know, we would basically made the FBI agent named Carl Schloff. He and not the killer uh, was the main focal point of the story. And we follow him as he does his work. And, and we go through what, what he was thinking right from beginning uh, to the end, how sort of the FBI was able to make all their mistakes. Uh, and, um, and you know, it, it, it was not difficult. We're, we've been making changes right to the end. Uh, and um, the pacing and the structure has definitely been the harder part, as opposed to, you know, I, I think I'm a better reporter than I am a writer. And so I, I'm, I, I'll get to any story, but when it comes to putting it together, that's where I have more trouble. And this was, you know, very much a learning curve and, um, you know, very helpful in, in uh, figuring out ways to build out tension. And uh, a lot of that really did come from from my editors. I love that you bring up, you know, that, you know, you feel that, you know, you're a better reporter than a writer. And uh, I I feel like a lot of people might uh, feel the other way around where they feel like they can be they're better writers, but they don't have the repertorial uh, fundamentals or foundation to, I don't know, to curate in uh, the best information from which they can then spin a good yarn Um, for maybe people who who uh who struggle with reporting and the skill and the craft of reporting what might you say to those people to so they can get get a bit better at this so they can get better information and write better stories the key is to be endly uh, the keys are to be endlessly curious mm-hmm. to um despite what i said uh, about about the victims not really take no for an answer and it doesn't mean you you take no for an answer uh from uh, a source. I mean, I, I mean, you don't take no from an answer. Like you don't assume that you can't get to the bottom of something and you do, don't assume that there isn't an answer. And there's always more to report and there are more people to talk to and more questions to ask. And it's really just a matter of uh, getting on the phone and, and, and being able to track people down. I uh, am, I, I would say to, that they should join IRE, uh, investigative reporters and editors, which is uh, a membership association for investigative journalists. They have annual conferences and guides and a lot of mentorship, tip sheets, uh, story examples that are, that are super, super helpful. Um, you know, I have a master's degree in political science. I never took a journalism course in my life. So I'm pretty much self-taught. And that means I, I, I read a lot of different books and I watch a lot of webinars and I go to see people in person. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that I'm very much a, a permanent student of, of learning how to be a reporter and sort of, um, you know, getting better all the time. And, and I'll give you an example of that where it worked with the story in the, uh, in, I think it was 2010, um, a newspaper in Boulder did a series on Kimball. And it's by far the best thing that has been done on Kimball. 
but by the time I report started reporting my story, which was really it, well, by the time I get, really began writing, it was it was in 2019 and 2020, and the links were all broken uh, for for the website that this appeared on. It was a Boulder Daily camera, and uh, all the links were broken, so I couldn't really read the stories. And, and they had a lot of uploaded documents and photographs, and I couldn't get any of them. And it was very, very frustrating. I And I even reached out to the reporter who, who wrote the series, and he said he was basically tied up and, and couldn't help me out. And LexisNexis didn't have anything because it was mostly web uh, stuff. And... Um, but, but but I attended uh, a talk and a tip sheet uh, where some some reporters were talking about best practices and and to be to be frank I don't remember who it was but but they mentioned the Wayback Machine and they said that that's your best friend and for those who don't know the Wayback Machine is a website that catalogs the internet through time so uh, inter links that get broken one day. Uh, maybe exist on the Wayback Machine from when they were correct. Um, and so I, I, I plugged in the website to the Wayback Machine to 2011 and 2012, and it worked. And so uh, I was able to get access to these crucial documents and crucial stories that I, that I had trouble finding anywhere else. Um, and that only happened because I, I you know, um, was, was paying attention to some veteran who, who offered that tip. And that's the type of thing that that you, you get. I'm a freelancer, so I'm not I'm not even in a newsroom with with with, with veterans and, and better and more experienced reporters who can teach me. But, um, the, you know, there are a lot of places where you can go and, and follow them uh, on Twitter. And, and, you know, people are always sharing best practices and and tips uh, that investigative reporters uh, can can share with each other. And I very much learn from them. Mm. And and you said like there's always there's always more to report, and uh, that's a great that's a great instinct to have that there's always another call or several calls to make. Um, you know that said on the other side of that, how do you know when you're finished and when you really have to turn that faucet off? I mean, the, so there's no correct answer. If, if uh, you know, I might turn the story into a book, and, and if I do, I'll do more reporting, and. If it gets made into something else, I'll do even more reporting. I, I think the answer is you want to feel that you have enough reporting for your medium. So I I was working on a 12,000 word atavist story and I wanted enough reporting with plenty to spare to tell the best possible atavist story that I could. And there's more reporting that I could do, but you know we do want to get this out. And, and as I said, the, the, the most challenging parts of the story had to do with the, with the writing uh, and, and the crafting than it did with the reporting. So once, once we had a lot of different interviews uh, and a lot of primary source documents, court, court records, documents from the FBI, then we were able to begin writing. And as we went along, my editor would, would ask questions and, and I would go back to, to my sources or even contact new ones uh, as part of the writing process. So, so unfortunately, there's no, there's no you know, rule of thumb for that. My best answer is just I, I want to have enough to tell the best possible story that I can. And at some point, it, it starts to be you start to get diminishing returns where I could spend six months reporting more, but I wouldn't have much more. I would have a little more, but, but not much more to add to the piece. Uh, whereas a po where I, where, as I, if I focus on the writing, 
that bro both brings out the problems with the reporting and encourages me uh, to, to, to do more reporting. I love hearing you say, and you've said this throughout the whole conversation that w- regarding this piece that it's like we, we were when we were writing this and we were working on this. And I, I love hearing you say that because it really gets to the heart of uh, of pieces of this nature are very much a collaboration, right? Right. I I, uh, I do believe that one thing that the atavist does that that is fantastic is they don't just list the writer; they list the editor, the copy editor, the fact checker. Uh, the art director, and uh, if ever there was a a piece that does not belong solely to the writer, uh, it really is this one, and it it, it is something that um, would look radically different and be much much worse if I had done it on my own, and or, or even just with an, with uh, some editors who were sort of hands off. This was a a piece that needed a, a heavy hand because they were much more experienced at building intention and figuring out when we should reveal information, what we should hold back. You know, I'd much, uh, I'd written much more of a sort of straightforward, not a, I guess you could even say a news piece, a, a really long news piece. It was the draft that I first handed in was 20,000 words, but it was, it was much more sort of comprehensive than it, it, it needed to be. Uh, and, and, you know, it was sort of almost like an encyclopedia of this story, but that's really not what people want to read. And, and Jonah and, and Sayward Darby, the editor in chief were really, uh, really great about turning this into something that people would want to read while also maintaining the most important elements and, and the focus on the FBI. I came across a, a blog post this morning, and this is sometimes one of those one of those deals where I, I love how just randomly stumbling across something can then like lead to something that I could ask someone like yourself. And uh, it's always that kind of fluid nature of being of uh, you know, these interviews and conversations. And it was a blog post by Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art and several other novels. He's just a brilliant writer and a great person, a great inspiration. And his blog post was about the depth of commitment and that's usually what it takes to make it as a as a fill in the blank as a writer because it gets very hard and there's a lot a lot of dark nights of the soul and so i kind of wanted to extend to you in this line of work this kind of journalism this kind of freelancing it takes a tremendous depth of commitment and uh, i was just wondering you know if you could speak to that and and what it's taken you to get to the point where you're at right now yeah i think it has there's a couple of things one is sort of a basic obsessiveness um you and i were sort of talking a bit right before we, we turned the recorder on it and i mentioned uh th- that i'm reading an 850 page book and, and as i was saying that i, I was realized that sort of sounds weird um and, and because i described it as great fun but you know but but it is and and so if you're the type of person who does that you might be the type of person who is willing to spend countless hours with you know, stacks of, of FBI files and, and going through transcripts and, and court records. So I, I think there is a, a basic of, a obsessiveness there. Uh, and then I think maybe if you have sort of some sort of hunger for recognition or success, uh, that often has its roots in childhood, um, that sort of thing can, can really be helpful too. Um, you know, I, I, I've just sort of always wanted to be a really good writer and I didn't want to be anything else. 
uh, since I was 13. That's the only thing I ever thought I wanted to do. And so I, it's, uh, it's all I've put my energy into really, uh, certainly professionally, but even, you know, um, socially and, and personally, I, I spent a lot of my spare time uh, doing reading and writing. And, um, and so, it, you know, if you're the type of person who does that and the type of person, and I think that's true uh, for a lot of people, different people who, who work in the arts or, you know, uh, you know, other people who work in the, these type of fields that, that require a degree of obsessiveness. Um, you know, it, it's just uh, helpful to have that sort of singular focus. I know that there's a bunch of people who, I respect who are smarter than me, but they sort of, um, they have many different hobbies and uh, they're, they have many different interests. And because of that, they, they, I think they have sort of trouble uh, nailing themselves to their chair and, and doing one particular thing. And uh, so, so it, it's sort of a, a, it's a blessing and a curse because it can seem strange to outsiders to be so, so focused on, uh, some small things or one particular field, but um, it, it's very helpful if you're an investigative reporter or a writer to, to have that, that type of, of passion and, uh, and obsessiveness. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, Jordan, before I let you get out of here, I, I just need to ask you one more thing. Uh, tell me a little bit about Penny, your Dalmatian basset hound. Man. Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked. She was a very good friend uh, during the writing of this piece. And though she isn't mentioned in the credits, uh, she has gotten a lot of extra treats for being a wonderful muse. And uh, especially during COVID, uh, I live alone and, and she was a great, uh, a great companion to have. And she never let me get too down uh, and always made sure I, I did get out of the house and, uh, and, and laughed. And so um, as lonely as writing can be, it, it is definitely enhanced by having a pet. And so I recommend any any writer have one. Um, and uh, you can't you can't write them off. I, I've looked into it. You, you can't claim them as a tax deduction, as <laughs> as work helpers. But uh, they really are of of uh, great value to to any writer. Oh, fantastic! Well, well, Jordan, this was great talking to you. Uh, awesome, awesome job on that on the piece you wrote for Atavist. And I uh, guess keep up the great work, and let's keep in touch. Thanks a lot, Brennan. I appreciate it. Well, as I am wont to say, that was a toe-tap in good time. Thanks to Jonah and Jordan for the time, and thanks to you for listening. Hope this was entertaining, informative. I know it was for me. Be sure to check out Jordan's story at magazine.atavis.com and get the show notes to this and over 250 other interviews at brendanomero.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly reading list newsletter, I send out book recommendations, links to articles, uh, writing prompts, and an exclusive digital happy hour link that I do over Zoom. I sometimes bring on a CNF and friends so we can have a little conversation with someone who's uh, a good pal who's been on the show, and he can come in and pick their brain. It's a fun time. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. Also, check out patreon.com slash cnfpod if you want to support the show and your fellow writers. You get some cool goodies, too. Transcripts, uh, coaching tiers, and the knowledge that no, 
knowledge that you know that your dollars are going to help the community and the tellers of true stories. So go window shop. It doesn't disappoint. Yeah, I had a, no, no real parting shot. This is that extra podcast where I really just keep it laser focused on out of it. So that's going to do it. CNFers, new episode coming this Friday. So uh, stay tuned. Subscribe to the show. Let me know what you think. Stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. See ya. See ya.